When I first learned that song, I thought to myself, there should be streamers somewhere, glitter, something. Yet, that's a much better song to sing when the calendar turns than uh, Auld Lang Syne. So. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of Hosea. Hosea is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Hosea, of course, that small uh, prophet uh, right after the book of Daniel and um, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I want to direct your attention to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. If you don't have a uh, copy of the Bible with you this morning, you can use the one in the pews ahead of you. If you don't have a copy at all, you can take that with you as you leave. Uh, this morning is our gift to you. We'd love for you to leave with a copy of the scriptures if you don't have one. Um, I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 13, starting in verse 4 through the end of the chapter. So Hosea 13, 4 through 16. So follow along as I read from God's word this morning. But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. Verse 5. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, Give me a king and a prince's? So in my anger I gave you a king, and in my wrath I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up, his sins are kept on record. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion. Even though he thrives among his brothers, an east wind from the Lord will come blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered of all its treasures. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Well, it should not surprise you this morning that the theme of our study of the book of Hosea today is on judgment. We've been in this book for four months now. We're almost finished. And this, though, in this book is the final declarative statement of judgment. The verdict is in. The uh, verdict is death. And God has been both the judge and will now be the executioner. Some of you here this morning, and I understand why, some of you might struggle a little bit with the language that's used here, the ferocity of this description of what God is going to do. Their pregnant women are going to be ripped open, the text says. If if you are in that situation where this, this gives you pause, you should understand that the Bible itself is not unaware of the objections and concerns and questions that people ask about judgment. In fact, Uh, Do you know that the first doctrine in the Bible about God 
that is denied, or the first thing in the Bible that is denied, that is uh, uh, unaffirmed in the scriptures, is judgment. In the, in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, uh, the serpent comes into the Garden of Eden and says to Eve, Why don't you eat from that tree over there? It looks really good. And Eve said, We can't eat from that tree. We can't even touch it. And the day that we eat it, we will surely die. And ser- the serpent says, You will not die. First denial like that in the Bible. The denial of the fact that God keeps his word in judgment. I think a lot of the questions that, that people have about this is that this image, these images that are here, oh, he says that he's going to be like a lion, like a bear robbed of her cubs. Grizzly sounding. Like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will attack them and rip them. This does not seem to match what a lot of people, how a lot of people prefer to think about God. It's not the image that they have in mind of him. Think about how are the, the images and the pictures that we have most often of the Lord Jesus. The last image that we have in the Bible of the Lord Jesus is sitting on the throne in, in the heavenly Jerusalem, reigning, ruling over the earth. That's great. Right before that, in Revelation 19, the image that we have of the Lord Jesus is that he's riding on a horse. Uh, his name is Faithful and True. And he's coming to earth as a conquering warrior, and he is going to, with the sword that comes out of his mouth, kill so many people that blood is going to be as high as a horse's bridle for miles and miles and miles. That's not the picture that you hang up in your child's bedroom of Jesus. Right? Most of the pictures that we have of Jesus, he's underweight, sober, somber, a little effeminate, and he's holding a sheep. He's holding a child. He's not never mean, never angry. Uh, he doesn't contradict anybody. Um, God is he's loving. He's kind. He's patient. He's affirming. He's not angry or harsh or judgmental. He's, he's, he has no boundaries for people. He just wants to welcome and accept everybody. Like, like your semi-senile grandfather at your family reunion, just happy that you're all here. I know she's not a theologian, but the actress uh, Jessica Alba writes, uh, spoke about this a little bit ago. She was interviewed by Vanity Fair magazine, and she says that when she was 12 years old, she was seeking a purpose. She wanted to exist. I want, I want to know why I exist. And when she was 12, she uh, became a devout evangelical Christian. Youth group, lock-ins, retreats, missions trips, everything. She did that from the age she was 12 to 17. When she was 17, she went to a a drama uh, workshop, an acting workshop in Vermont, and there she fell, she says, I fell crazy in love with a cross-dressing ballet dancer who had a baby and was bisexual, and I saw him and loved him, and I thought to myself, there's just no way he's going to hell because God wouldn't send like, someone like him to hell. That's a common thought that people have, that, that certainly God wouldn't do, because certainly God can't be like this. People can't be that bad. <laughs> well, we have a perfect book before us, the book of Hosea, to talk about this imagery here or this concept of God being a God of judgment and justice. 
actually flows all the way through uh, the book of Hosea. This is a passage itself that is filled with what Gary Smith calls caring and tearing. Caring, verse 5, it says, I cared for you in the wilderness. Oh, there's the image. God, Jesus carrying the sheep. It's here. But then, verse 8, tearing, I will rip them open. Caring and tearing. The whole book has been like this, hasn't been? It's, it's, this, this whole book has set this up for you, us, this combination of caring and tearing. Remember that Hosea starts, Hosea starts with God commanding the prophet to go and marry a woman who would be unfaithful. That's the master image behind the book of Hosea. It is likely that Hosea married a woman in obedience to God's command who was a cult prostitute involved in one of the pagan religions that was um, uh, being practiced in Israel and infected the nation. Hosea was to find this woman. Her name was Gomer. He was to love her. He was to marry her. And when she left him to return to her prostitution, he was to still love her and go rescue her. Hosea's marriage to Gomer was like a living picture of God's relationship with his people Israel, his rebellious people. Rebellion against God, human rebellion against God, is not a question merely of breaking God's rules. It is breaking God's heart. It's the whole point of the book of Hosea. So when people raise objections, God just doesn't seem like that. He seems too nice he seems too kind to judge people. You pick up the book of Hosea and, I say, and say to them, I know exactly how kind and gracious God is. But that does not eliminate or negate his justice. It's a perfect book for answering that objection. Human rebellion is horrible. I want to show you that this morning. I want to talk to you about uh, four characteristics of God's judgment that we see in this text. We think that the definitive end for humanity is still coming in the future. We'll get to that in the fall. We're going to look through the book of 2 Thessalonians that will help us think about that some more. But we have here in the end of the book of Hosea a prophecy about another definitive end in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the end of Israel. It's a national death that would take place in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded. And Hosea is prophesying about these. He's telling the people this is what's going to happen. Here are four characteristics of God's judgment. They apply here, and they apply to the definitive judgment that is still yet in the future. Here they are. First of all, notice it is well-deserved. God's judgment is well-deserved. That's the emphasis of verses 4 through 8. It's well-deserved. Now, there's a transition here in this passage from caring to tearing, and we're going to get at those two by asking two questions. The first question we want to ask is, how did God describe his relationship with Israel? How does he describe what he does? He is their savior and he is their provider. Look, he says, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I rescued you from Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me. Sounds like the first commandment. It, it should. You have no Savior except me. There is no one who, who will rescue you, no God who has done for any people what I have done for you. I cared for you in the wilderness. It was hot. No one should have survived in that awful, hot, sandy desert. And I cared for you. It's a very tender image. God gave them manna. He gave them water. He, he, he cared for them. 
Remember that these images like this are all the way through the book of Hosea. We read a couple weeks ago from Hosea 11. Uh, God says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I was with a, a grandfather and his 13-month-old child recently. His 13-month-old child is learning how to walk, but he refuses to walk unless someone holds his hands. It would be easier if 13-month children were a little taller, but they're not very tall. You have to lean over. His grandfather was holding his hands, and they were walking like this all the way around. Grandfather turned to me. This is why grandfathers walk this way, right? He said, I'm never going to be upright again in my life. Hours and hours and hours of this and this. this. God says, I taught you how to walk, nation of Israel. I, I was there. I did this for you. I cared for you. I, I rescued you. You have no savior but me. Such a tender image and love in, in this, this passage. Now, the second question that we have to ask and answer, though, in these opening verses is then, how did the people respond to God's tenderness and his care for them? Well, verse 6 tells us, and it's not very good. Look, it says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. Well, that's good. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and their pride made them forget me. God had warned them about this. Look at, I, have, I wrote down on the note sheet, if you're following along, I wrote down some verses from Deuteronomy 8. Look, look at those verses. And the, the vocabulary is so much the same. When I fed them, they were satisfied. They were satisfied. They became proud and they forgot me. Listen to what it says. Be careful. Moses had warned the people. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Oh, they had been warned. They had been warned about this. This is a great danger. This is a tremendous danger. Forgetting God and receiving from Him His gifts. Failing to make the connection between what He has given and the relationship to us that those gifts reflect. One wonders if this still happens. I think it still does. Jesus said that it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? He's expounding perhaps on this principle they were satisfied, they became proud, they forgot me. Um, is that what maybe Jesus is saying? Is it, could it be that the rich become satisfied and proud and forgetful? You can be poor and proud and forgetful too. This is not just the domain of the rich. Jesus had that specific warning. Or look at Proverbs 38 and 9, where the, the, the author of Proverbs, the writer of this proverb, prays, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Beware of getting everything you want in life. Oh, be careful. Be careful of making your bucket list uh, and crossing every item off of it. You cross items off, it will become easier and easier for you to make the mistake that this life is heaven. That, that heaven is here, eternal joy is here in the things that we get. And the first item on your bucket list should be see Jesus. After that, everything will take on its own significance, right? Hmm. The Bible uses the word forget here. It's not merely forgetfulness that they say... 
oh yeah, God, like they've, they've dropped from his memory. Forgetfulness is rebellion. They're in rebellion against God, attributing the blessings that he gives to false gods. And he responds like a lion, a leopard, and a bear robbed of her cubs. We've made this lion, Hosea has made this lion comparison before. We've seen it, haven't we? Over and over again, he says, I'm going to be a lion to you. I'm going to come and tear you apart and rip you apart. Uh, over and over again, Hosea uses this imagery. A few years ago, uh, Albert Moeller wrote an article, and it was called, Why Did God Make Dangerous Creatures? Why did God make dangerous creatures? It's a good question. Every boy that I know, including myself, has gone through a phase, at least one phase, where we are obsessed with animals that can kill us, right? Sharks, dinosaurs, tigers, snakes. So you get the the plastic animals, or you check those books out of the library, you read about all these animals that can kill us and eat us. Why is that? (laughs) Uh, it's a sign. It's a sign in the fabric of creation that God has put there that you are not indestructible, and in fact, you are a vulnerable person. How much more are you vulnerable before the God who made you? God's judgment is well-deserved. Now, second here, God's judgment is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. In verse 10, God asks the people, where is your king that he may save you? They, they don't have a king anymore. Their king is gone. There is no human person who can stand in between them and God. They had wanted kings. They had begged God to give them kings and princes because they wanted to be like other nations. Oh, I think there's something instructive there. If we had more time, maybe we'd stop and think about this. But this, God's people were so bent on being just like everybody else that they had to have kings. They wanted kings. There's this impulse within us. We want to be like other people. Why? Maybe it's so we won't get mocked. Maybe because we think that that what they have looks better than what we have. Maybe we just want to be cool like them. They have kings. We want to have kings too. In the Israelites' case, maybe it's they wanted somebody that they could trust in other than God. Someone who could be their champion, their deliverer. Someone who could could, uh, stand for them. It had been God. God had been their helper. The text says that, doesn't it? Verse 9, you are against me, against your helper. That should make them think. They're thinking about kings. In 1 Samuel, they had defeated the Philistines in a great victory, and they raised a stone pillar. Samuel built a stone pillar, and he gave it a name, Ebenezer. We used to sing, I don't think it's in the verses that we sing anymore, but in the song, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. It was a sign. It was a a symbol of the fact that God has helped us. He has been our helper. God is our helper. They wanted a king instead. They don't have a king. There's there's nobody. Nobody who's going to protect them from this, from God's wrath. You could read this text. You could read this text and ask yourself, who are you trusting in to protect you, and to provide for you. Every person in this room has some alternate Savior, something else that you (coughs) are tempted to trust in, to rely upon, to look to as your confidence, as your source of security, as your source of validation. Every single one of us have this thing. 
We're going to move on. Third, God's justice is for fools. God's justice is for fools. That's perhaps not the most elegant way to say this, but I'm not sure how else to describe what Hosea says in verse 13. Verse 13, he uses this imagery. Let's look at the text here. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. Remember, uh, these are the days, the book of Hosea, uh, of great danger in pregnancy and childbirth. I'm grateful for medical advances that have drastically reduced, in the United States, the mortality rate for mothers and babies. I'm so grateful, but this is the statement. This is a statement about the nation in this very fragile and difficult time. Labor has come, but the baby is so foolish, so lacking in sense, that the baby is not going to move down the birth canal and come out. What does this mean? Well, this were a delivery room today. Someone would hit a button on the wall and everybody would go to surgery and they would cut that baby out. That's a graphic way to say it. It's cesarean section would be performed. Right? <laughs> Here, what happens? Certain death. Certain death for this mother and this baby. Uh, Being so close to this taunts about these kings, uh, one commentator in the book of Hosea suggested in this scenario, the royal leaders and and high-ranking priests are are like the mother of the child. So the the king is like the mother or the priests are like the mother and the common people are like the baby. And the, 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 the king has provided such poor leadership that the average Israelite doesn't know anybody better, doesn't even know how to find rescue and freedom in life. A week or so before Claire was due, uh, we found out that she was breached. She was upside down. There's a lot of old wives' tales on the Internet to try to get your baby to turn. We tried them all. So let's stick frozen peas right about here and make the baby move away from the cold. right? Um, lie upside down on an ironing board. Shine flashlights in strategic places. Around, try to get that baby to go to the light. Let's see the light. This is an this is an upside down baby in the text who sees the way out but refuses to go. So foolish. So foolish. Last week we talked about increased accountability for people who hear about Jesus and yet turn away from him. The way out has been clearly made known to them, and they will not accept it. And by the standards of the Bible, that makes you a fool. If you hear this morning, we're talking, we're singing about Jesus Christ, about the Savior. And if you hear me say, call you to believe in him and turn to him, and you refuse, you are a fool, and there is no other hope for you. Elie Wiesel uh, died yesterday. Elie Wiesel was a um, Holocaust survivor. He was uh, involved in in hunting around the world, uh, Nazis who'd escaped justice. He was uh, a prominent spokesman for the state of Israel. Uh, He told a story once about a prophet who was in a particular town, and the prophet was speaking to the town, and he'd been there for a long time, preaching and proclaiming that the people needed to turn and repent. Now, it's not a biblical story, but he, he, he was, this prophet was speaking, and nobody listened to him. Nobody at all would listen to him. In fact, all they did in this town would make fun of him. They'd mock him and imitate him and throw things at him. And 
One day, one little boy came to him and said, why are you still doing this? Nobody's paying attention to you. Nobody's going to listen to you at all. Why don't you just stop? And he said, I don't keep prophesying. I don't keep preaching because I, I expect people to listen to me. I keep preaching so I never start listening to them. Foolishness. Foolishness. Now, finally, we have here this, a paradox in this text, something that is unexpected. God's, God's judgment is fatal, but it's not final. God's judgment is fatal, but it's not, not final. At least for a certain portion of the population. Now, it's, it's fatal for all. It's not final for all. This, that's contradictory. I know this. How can something be fatal but not final? There has never been a fatal traffic accident that has not been final. How, how, can, that, how can that be? Well, the, the fatality here is at the end of verse 16. It's so clear. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground. Their pregnant women ripped open. Why in this text is there so much emphasis on, on women who are suffering? There's the pregnant woman in verse 13, and there's a pregnant woman in verse 16. Why, why is that there? Well, a couple of different reasons. One, I think that Hosea here is plugging into the master image of the whole book. Remember, Hosea pictures rebellion against God as a form of spiritual adultery. And it's about uh, Hosea's uh, unfaithful wife. And here is an unfaithful woman the nation who is suffering. So I think he's fitting into the image of the book of, of Hosea. The other thing that he's doing here when he's talking about this pregnant woman, pregnant women who are suffering is he has come to this point. He's trying to show you how bad it is. D- despite the lunacy of the U.S. Department of Defense, you are not supposed to send your women to war to fight your battles for you. Huh. Your women are just to stay home. They're the, the, you, the soldiers go, the women stay home, especially the pregnant women. They stay home because that, they're, they're, uh, pregnant women don't make great soldiers. And the next generation, you have the next generation to, to care for, they, they do. And yet, the battle is so bad, God's judgment is so comprehensive, the soldiers are dead and they're coming for the pregnant women who are at home and they're going to rip them open too. Terrible. Comprehensive. Fatal. It's a death sentence for the nation. And yet there's this very odd verse here in this passage. Very odd verse. Verse 14. It says... I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? This is so out of place. This is such a strange verse in this context that actually, if you have an ESV, it makes it it a question. So the NIV says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. And the ESV makes it a question. (coughs) The ESV says, will I deliver these people from the power of the grave? And on the basis of the, the context, you read it, and you, the, 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 the prophet says, will I deliver people from the power of the grave? And you say, no. Where, O oh, death, are your plagues? They're coming. They're on their way. Because these people deserve this judgment. The ESV makes it a question. It just seems so uncertain. 
How can, how can something positive like this, in the midst of all this judgment, I'm going to rip you open, I'm going to be like a lion, I'm going to be a leopard, I'm going to be roaring at you. How can he then say, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave? How can that be? And yet Hosea is sprinkled with interruptions like that. There's judgment, 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 judgment. And in the midst of it, just this wonderful statement about God's, God's great tenderness and God's, God's love for the, the people. It's so strange. Do you remember? We'll take the time to do it. But go back to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Do you remember this? Um, we, t- we talked about this when we were in Hosea 2 uh, back a few months ago. Verse 13. Hosea 2, 13. Um, God is speaking still. He says, I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry, went after her lovers. But me she forgot. So there's that word forget again. Then verse 14 starts, therefore. Now, what would you expect to come after a therefore? You're running after your lovers. You're offering incense to the bales. The bales, I'm going to punish you. Therefore, what would you expect to come next? It, you, I would expect it to say, you're toast. I'm coming after you. You are dead meat. Right? Except the text says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. <laughs> that doesn't fit. This interruption. Now if we go back to Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. The, the second part of verse 14 emphasizes God's power. He has power over death and plagues and the grave and destruction. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? They're nothing <laughs> because I am stronger than all of those things. This judgment is not happening here because God is weak or forgetful or he's neglected his people or he doesn't know what else to, to do with them. They're not under his control or his power. He, he rules over all of these things. Almost taunts them. Bring it on, death. I'm more powerful than you. Verse 14 also, though, tells us about how terribly bad our situation before God is. How serious is our state before God? It is so bad. It is so bad that the only way out is through death and into resurrection. It's the only way to be saved. The condition is that serious. There are no other alternatives. The rebellion of this nation is so horrible that justice demands death. And the only way that God can save them is by rescuing them from death itself. The Apostle Paul understands this, which is why part of the reason that he quoted this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Pastor Scott read it a few minutes ago. That great chapter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death is the due penalty for all this rebellion. It's the due penalty for your rebellion. So what can be done about this? What can we do about this? Well, first of all, you could die. The Bible talks about eternal death or second death, experiencing the horrible wrath of God for eternity. You have, that is your natural destiny. Or secondly, you can rely on Jesus' death, his substitutionary death. Uh, during the Civil War, Congress passed a law in 1863. It was called the Enrollment Act of 1863. And under this law, men were able to, uh, who were drafted were enabled to pay, 
excuse me, pay someone else to go and serve in their stead. Um, the man who became uh, president, one of the men, Grover Cleveland, did this. Uh, John Rockefeller, the oil magnate, did this. The, the going rate for paying someone to go serve in your stead in the Union Army was about $300, uh, $5,000 in today's uh, money. Uh, Abraham Lincoln at the time was president. He was too old to be drafted. And, and of, of course, as, as commander-in-chief, he would have been exempt from the draft. But he wanted to encourage other uh, ineligible draftees to participate in the program. So uh, he sent Noble Lerner, a man by the name of Noble Lerner. Noble Lerner was a member of the draft committee for Washington, D.C., and the, and the White House was in his district. And, and Abraham Lincoln sent Noble Lerner out into the streets of Washington to find him a substitute. A noble Lerner was walking down the street one day, and he ran into a man named J. Summerfield Staples, uh, who was born in uh, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And J. Summerfield Staples had already served in the Union Army. He went into the Army uh, in 1861 or so, and got typhoid fever and was discharged, went home, recovered, and moved down to Washington, D.C. with his father. His father was a carpenter, and Staples was there working with him. And Noble Lerner ran into uh, Summerfield Staples and, and talked to him about his service in the war and his willingness to go back, and Staples agreed. So Noble Lerner took J. Summerfield Staples into the White House to meet Abraham Lincoln. He talked for a few minutes. They asked the, him the necessary questions to determine that he was physically and mentally able to serve in the army. And Abraham Lincoln paid him $500 to enlist on his behalf. Um, the Library of Congress has the document that both of them signed acknowledging the payment of the money and the service that would be rendered in the military. Uh, Staples um, survived the war. He returned home. He was buried in Stroudsburg. You can go to the Stroudsburg Cemetery. On his tombstone it says, Abraham Lincoln's Substitute. It's an interesting story. There's a few key differences in the story. Jesus is not our substitute for money. Not because of anything that we could offer him. If we had something that we could offer him uh, in order to be our substitute, we would be too foolish to offer it to him. He, he is our substitute for the sake of his love. It's within him that we find the reason why he went to the cross. And secondly, the second difference is that the Lord Jesus entered a battlefield where death was certain. The only way to be rescued from God's judgment is to rely on the Savior. God's judgment is always fatal, but it need not be final. Because, huh, where in God's kingdom, where death are your plagues, where grave is your destruction? We commemorate our reliance together on the Lord Jesus as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for your great Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read even in this text these words, you are our helper, you are our only Savior, you are the one on whom we must rely. Lord, I am thankful to you for the many men and women and teenagers in our congregation that have spoken to me and can testify of the fact that 
Jesus is the one on whom they are relying. Uh, this, this church was, was formed uh, from the overflow of, of joy in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And for over 40 years, we, we've, we've met every Sunday to, to sing and celebrate that and to rejoice in your great goodness. Lord, we're mindful of the fact that um, we know and love people, though, who are the fools described in this passage, who have turned and spurned what your word has said. Oh, oh Lord, we, we do pray for mercy, that you would open blind eyes and break hard hearts that they seeing the wonder of what you have done in sending your son for us would turn and believe and trust in Christ and rely on him our, our, our prayer and our hope would be that that, that would be true of, of all who have gathered here together today to worship this morning Thank you for your word that is sure and clear about your right and good justice and your overflowing and abundant mercy. Oh, how sweet those things are to us. Help us as we move to remember the Lord's death uh, and his resurrection. Help us to rejoice in, in our deliverance that comes through him. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.